this crazy world we live in, when people use the word geek, it can create certain impressions. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream. Let's learn about the real people behind the stereotype. I'm your super dummy Paul. This is Geek. My name is Kelly Gaines. I am a writer, podcaster, um, general nerd at large, uh, comic book reviewer, and I currently do most of my work for DC Comics News. Kind of right out of college, I tried to, you know, start my way down the professional nerd path. So this has been the best, the best way. Before that, I was doing a lot of just kind of random freelance articles for different websites. Um, I think DC Comics News is definitely the first site that I wrote for that was more of a a community where I'm doing, you know, a a lot of different things for them. And I'm, you know, very familiar with Josh, the editor, and of course, my co-host at the podcast and whatnot. Uh, So it was, it's a lot more, I would say I consider them more my friends than, you know, I, I did for any other places I worked for. You know, everyone brings something different to the table in a way, even though we're all there to talk about DC Comics, which is kind of a very specific niche of nerddom. But yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. DC, just from their history and I mean, now there's, you know, the entire multiverse and whatnot. There are so many different little wormholes that you can go down. You know, you can start, uh, you know, a show or an article talking about Wonder Woman and then you know, middle, 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 and suddenly you're talking about traditions in Greek culture from 400 years ago and how that relates to the the struggles of 1940s America, and it just turns into a thing. But that's that's the fun part. Outside of a person who likes comics, I see, but then some of my outside comics interests definitely just fall into general geekiness. There's not a lot to me outside of the stuff that makes me a weirdo, kind of. (laughs) Like, I, um... I, well, work is work, you know, you, you go, you do it. Um, but freelance writing is definitely something that I really, really enjoy. I would say that writing as a whole is kind of my, um, my big identifier, but you know, outside of that, um, I, um, well, was born and raised in New Jersey. So, um, you know, beach, a lot of woods, a lot of cornfields where I live. And a lot of, um, you know, sort of one of the older states, older areas of the United States. So we have some very interesting folklore in my area. So I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jersey Devil, but that is, you know, one of the big stories that I, I feel like everyone knows someone who swears they've seen it or they swear that their cousin's friend's sister has seen it or something like that. Um, and, you know, I, I think that is a big part of um you know my interest taking shape but uh yeah outside of that I grew up as almost the only girl in a family of mostly boys um I have three brothers no sisters most of my cousins are boys so uh you know I I would say that I learned how to be a very convincing talker and a very fast runner at a really young age so <laughs> That's that has been my my survival in life. Um, And also, I I think, you know, a a lot of my my interests and my 
willingness to get into kind of the nerdier things in life comes from growing up with brothers because what were you know what were they doing except playing video games and and watching lord of the rings and i was a power ranger for several halloweens um always the pink ranger but i i had this uh it was the pink ninja ranger costume and i think to this day that stands out as my favorite halloween costume that i ever wore i was four but i still love it still remember it do not fit in it anymore <laughs> not that i've tried i promise but uh yeah so so yeah i i think um just background wise i've learned how to kind of cope with life through um stories basically I, I was raised in a very devoutly catholic family so um every every sunday essentially except for a, a scattered handful my family has been in the same pew of the same church at 8 30 a.m for 30 years basically and i i think what i took from that which maybe isn't what my parents were hoping i would take from that is okay, so every single Sunday from my earliest memory, we see some guy stand up on a pulpit and he tells stories. And stories tell us what life is, how things work, why, you know, if you have a bunch of seeds and you put them in a box and don't plant them, you're not gonna have any plants. I mean, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory stuff. But I, I took away this feeling that stories are extremely, extremely important. Um, and honestly, I think as a kid, the rest of the world doesn't make a whole lot of sense. People don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, you know, your friends and classmates maybe don't make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, I kind of held on to that idea that, okay, but there is order and rhythm and logic in stories. So that kind of became a, I don't know, I guess it's just a crucible for forming the way I think. And uh, it, was, it was so important to my parents um, and such a big part of the way we raised us. It just, my, my entire kind of worldview formed around, okay, like we, you know, we, we hear these stories, we hear, um, you know, the lessons from them, and that just sets us up for the rest of life. So then, you know, my, my interest turned to, okay, so what other stories are there? And, you know, that branched off into, uh, well, we, we, we can touch on that later, but yeah, you know, in a, a session with fairy tales, basically, um, mythology, all, all of the, uh, Really, anything that I could get out of the ridiculously large, like 1950s storybooks that my mom had. There were there was a set of um, I want to say it was 12 or 13 books, all hardcover from like 1954, and uh, <clears throat> I think the first one was mythology. The second one was fairy tales. There was one on on making arts and crafts or something. But I would just carry those books around. It it was very fun and. Um, yeah, I, I think to this day, I haven't seen them in years, but I think if I were to open those books, I would still remember what picture is on every single page because I just, even when I couldn't read, I would just follow them and flip through them and go, yeah, oh yeah, that's Sleeping Beauty and that's Snow White. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it gave me kind of a platform to start figuring out people, I think. And also I, I just, one of the more interesting stories my mother told me recently was that when I was three in preschool, she had a conversation with my teacher. Um, and the teacher said, you know, Kelly is a very polite little girl, but she won't play with the other kids. She will go off by herself and, and play with, you know, dolls or toys or whatever. And if another kid comes up and asks to play with her, 
she will give them the toy she was playing with and go do something else. And it, it apparently was very perplexing to the teacher because she said she's not antisocial. You know, she she talks just fine. She's not shy. She's not afraid of the other kids. She just wants nothing to do with them. <laughs> and I think I I think that to me just says that even even at three, I have always just been happiest in my own head and in my own imagination. Um, because I I'm, can remember playing with toys and what I'm doing is telling myself stories and making up characters and making up a whole world. And I, I have to assume that when, you know, some other kid came lumbering up to ask if they could join, I, I guess my thought process must have been, oh, this is this is too much to explain to this. I, I sit here, you have it. I'm going to go do another one. <laughs> so, you know, it's I think it's just so deeply ingrained in me at this point that I, I genuinely don't know who I would be if I wasn't into these, you know, nerdier pursuits. And I, I guess that has kind of followed me into adulthood because even I would say at most of my jobs, again, I'm very friendly. I will talk to anyone if they talk to me, but for the most part, I will not seek you out and, and initiate the conversation for the most part. I just, I don't know. I, I'm more of a, an observer in a lot of ways. I'm good at being outgoing for, um, well, obviously things like podcasts and, and uh, convention stuff. But if, if I could pick the way that I like to spend most evenings, it would honestly be by myself in my office room, uh, usually watching some kind of cartoon or, or reading. One of the earlier books that, um, it, well, uh, let me just say, my family was a very, we, we had a schedule. I mean, I could tell you what my mom makes for dinner on Wednesday nights uh, and know that that is the case to this day. Even with just her and my dad in the house, they are still, Wednesday night is chilly. There's no way it's not. Um, and the same was true for our, our bedtime ritual. We They would say our evening prayers and then my mom would read us a story. Um, and at first it was always Grimm's fairy tales. So I think... My favorite as a child was, um, I think, Sleeping Beauty. But the one that interested me the most was Rumpelstiltskin. And it's, uh, you know, the story of the, the imp who meets a girl who needs to spin straw into gold and says, all right, I'll do that for you, but you have to give me something. Little does she know that something is her firstborn child. So she has a kid and she's like, oh, my God, no, you can't have my baby, weird little imp guy. Um, and so he says, if you can tell me what my name is, then I, you know, I'll go away forever. I won't take your kid. Um, and I just always thought that was such, I, I liked the bargaining chips that they used in fairy tales. I liked that to get out of this situation that you've caused, you need to figure out his name. Um, and of course, as a little kid, it was just a, a fun story. But then studying mythology and um, fairy tales and folklore, the power of names is something that comes up again and again and again in other stories. Um, and even across other cultures, you'll see stories that are kind of the same, the same-ish story. And it always revolves around, can you figure out what the name is? Can you say the name three times? And, you know, li little nuances like that. Um, and I think just being exposed to so much of that as a kid and kind of having that in the back of my head every single night going to sleep, finding these little patterns, it just made it easier as an adult where, you know, if I'm watching a TV show or if I'm reading a book, um, you know, a book or, or a comic or 
um, even sometimes listening to music, I, you find these little patterns come up again and again and again. Um, you know, another example is the, the kind of three mythical or supernatural woman tropes. So there's um, like the three witches in Macbeth, the three fates. Um, oh gosh, I forget. There's another one as well um, in, I believe it is Creek mythology. But it, it just, it sort of helped me transition, um, you know, just a, a childhood love of stories into a path that I could study. And even, you know, going up through college and being an English major in college, uh, you know, a good chunk of my degree was lining up different texts and seeing what fits, what does it mean, why do we keep telling these stories over and over. Um, and, and yeah, it, it just kind of spiraled. I don't think my parents ever intended to turn me into a nerd, but they did. Um, and and I, I don't think that they regret it at all. I think they're very content with the way that I've turned out. But um, yeah, they just, I, I, the thing you don't know growing up in, you know, in, in Catholic school or whatnot is that the half of what they're teaching you is very, very good information if you want to study literature or if you ever have any interest in the occult, because weirdly enough, they've already told you everything. <laughs> You're not supposed to think about it or talk about it, but they tell you about it. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, this, my parents did this is, is my point basically. <laughs> All their thought. Yes, exactly. And I love them for it. <laughs> so are there any other sort of hobbies or interests that bounce around there as well? Or are those the main ones? Oh, um, Oh gosh, I'm forgetting about like a whole side of my life. Um, I also very, very much like um, camping and backpacking. Um, I well, and I, I surfed for a bit in high school. Um, and when I say surf, I mean it was really me and my friend would wake up really early before school, take our surfboards out in her pickup truck, go float on them in the ocean for a little bit, never really catch any waves, and then come back in and go to school. So. It was, it was very relaxing, you know, a nice sunrise before school in the morning is, uh, you know, it's really the way to be. But um, yeah, so as far as um, camping and backpacking, I, because I have my band of brothers, they were all in Boy Scouts, um, which meant that my parents put me in Girl Scouts, which was a lot of sewing, um, a lot of arts and crafts, a lot of talent show stuff. Uh, and I mean, I love arts and crafts and whatnot, but it just wasn't uh, like I, I remember our big camping trip when I was in eighth grade was in a hotel. And that was kind of it for me. Yeah, I, I was at, at that point I was done because I on the on the off weekends would be with my brother's Boy Scout troops, um, you know, actually camping in the woods and cutting firewood and doing, you know, fun survivalist stuff. Um, so in high school, I joined a co-ed branch of Boy Scouts. Uh, called Venture Crew. We were Crew 18 from Freehold. Look us up, except don't, because we disbanded. But <laughs> um, And every, I think it was every two weeks or every month, we would go on, you know, a big actual, like, backpacking trip up through these trails in the woods, you know, miles from civilization, no cell phone service. Um, and it's, I, I look back now and I'm kind of baffled by it, because you would think that the worst idea in the world is taking a bunch of teenagers between 15 and 18 and letting them go off into the woods would be just about the worst thing you could do. But uh, that was very 
formative too, because one, I, I found out that I'm, I think I'm most myself when I'm kind of alone in the woods, which it, I mean, that's fair. That checks out from my, my preschool experience as well. <laughs> um, and, and secondly, I, you know, obviously mostly guys in my family, um, you know, and, and I, I always kind of had a, a difficult time maintaining friendships with other girls when I was a kid, except for the, you, my best friend who I went surfing with has, you know, always been my best friend and she always will be. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it taught me how to kind of not feed into that, uh, you know, I, I call it the ABC family idea that if you have to have two teenagers in a room of different genders, there's going to be some kind of romantic tension somewhere. And it, it just taught me how to appreciate, um, you know, not just platonic relationships, but being able to interact with uh, other kids my age who, you know, according to Seventeen magazine and whatnot, I should have been taking all these different ways and, and uh, you know, kind of thinking about things in this really, honestly, I would say just kind of sexist, um, I don't know, sexist lens. And just, we just got to be people. We just got to be a group of teenagers learning how to build fire and, and dig a sump hole. And, uh, you know, just uh, all of the, we, we lowered ourselves down a mine shaft with a stolen rope in Colorado. That was fun. Um, we, we got to ride horses through an abandoned ghost town. I mean, we, we did so much amazing stuff. And at the end of the day, I kind of look at it and I'm like, I think the fact that I, I'm able to work so comfortably just as myself, not really worried about, um, you know, how I look or how people are perceiving me just comes from, you know, I, I would say early high school is when you're kind of developing that sense of self. Um, and my sense of self was developed around, you know, just this, this community basically. Um, so I, I think it's, that's kind of echoed out into uh, you know, as a nerd, being able to exist in spaces that, you know, are, are traditionally considered to be mostly male. Um, and to be fair, I would say a lot of the places that I go to get my comic books and whatnot, I, I'm very often the only girl in the room. Um, and it just doesn't, it doesn't phase me because I, you know, but from, from growing up with brothers to being in Venture Crew, um, I, I just don't, I kind of undid that hard wiring that I think, um, I don't know, I, I guess kids in the 90s still just had that idea of, you know, the girls and the pink and the that side of the room and the boys and the blue and that side of the room. And it just helped me not have to think of people that way, that it just, I, I can sit here and be a nerd and be just as, you know, just as much a girl as anybody else. And I don't have to be scared of the guys because they are people, oddly enough. <laughs> Which again, I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you've read any, any of those teen girl magazines back in 2000, let's say 2010, but every little thing. I mean, I, I can remember reading articles about how, um, I, I think it was the way someone, or, the, the way someone behaves when they're seated next to you in class and how to decode it to see what they think of you, like little things like that. Or, or if, um, 
oh gosh, there, there were some silly ones, like what these five kinds of eye contact mean. And it just, I mean, what a horrible ra- way to raise little girls. <laughs> like, it, it's, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't, uh, didn't fall too hard into that. And when high school came around, I, you know, leaned towards venture crew and not towards that. So I think that kind of gave me that, that push to stick with my interests instead of, um, you know, putting them aside. I think at, at a certain point, everybody makes a choice to, are you going to keep the things that you loved as a kid? Or are you going to, I'm an adult now, you know, no more colorful stuff, no more animated movies, no more superheroes, I'm done. Uh, yeah, I, I think being part of that whole, um, that whole group just helped me not turn into that, essentially. Hmm. Yeah, because I'm... On the face of it, you would say that those activities against your sort of nerdy, geeky side, that the, you kind of look at them and think, they're kind of polar opposites. But it probably helped that you were surrounded by a load of boys who were probably into those sorts of things as well anyway. Yes, yeah. That, and that was the other thing. My first, um, my first Comic-Con experience actually was with that group. We took a venture crew trip to New York Comic-Con and I was, I think I was 14. Um, and I just remember, well, I, at first I wasn't sure why we were going to Comic-Con. I, I had always been into comic books, but I'd never, you know, it, it was always more of a, a personal thing. Um, you know, I, I never, I wasn't the type to wear, you know, a Wonder Woman shirt out or stuff like that, or, uh, you know, go out and seek out comic book stores. I would always sort of, if, um, you know, if we were in Barnes & Noble or something, or, at the time, they still sold comics at um, at Shoprite. Uh, so you know, my my mom would do her weekend grocery shopping, and I could go with her and flip through the Archie comics that were up by the register. Um, so I, it was it, it was strange to me at the time because I I had just never even considered being part of a convention experience, and to go and see everything that was there was just so incredible. And on top of that, I, I'm looking around and thinking, oh, wow, all of these people are people like me. Like, everybody here is, like, I, I'm not weird in this room. This is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so from there, um, I think within that next year, I found what was and will always be my favorite comic book store ever. And it closed down a couple years ago, which I'm still gutted about. And it, it wasn't, they, clo- they didn't close down because, um, you know, because they weren't making money, they actually closed down because the man who owned the store had owned it for, I think, 35 years, something like that. And he had made enough to retire comfortably. He was kind of tired of, of, you know, running the store. But I, I can remember going there um, when, I, I mean, after college, I would go there on payday. So I would, I would get my paycheck on Friday and immediately go to the comic book store. Um, and, and, I, I can remember hearing people in line saying that they had driven from, you know, from Pennsylvania or from, you know, however far away. Uh, I think one guy once said he had driven three hours because he was like, this place just has the biggest collection of back issues. And they really did. Like it was, it was a convention inside of a store essentially. Uh, and yeah, so I, I found that right after and over the years, you know, came to a place where it's all right, I know all of the staff by name and I, I know exactly when the new books come in. I know all of their events and it, it sort of started me building um, you know, a, a community essentially. 
I should start a little bit further back. Um, when I was in kindergarten, um, I started drawing my own comics and it, it came from actually my parents got the newspaper every week or I actually, do, I, I don't remember how often newspapers come in, anymore. I, I think in my head, I say it was every week, but I don't remember if that was actually the case or if that was just when I, I bothered to look on Sundays when there were comics in the newspaper. <laughs> but um, I started drawing my own and actually one of my, and I am a terrible artist. I'll, I'll put that out there now. I cannot draw but that never stopped me as a kid. And honestly, it still doesn't. But um, I, I started drawing my own comics in, in notebooks. And actually one of my prized possessions is I have a notebook from 2002. So I was in second grade. Um, and it just, it says comics in very sloppy letters on the front. And it is terribly drawn lines and little panels of like circle teddy bears chasing a pie or something. And like, and it just, I, I just really loved that kind of visual storytelling. I loved the idea that, you know, and to me, when something was on TV, and of course, I didn't understand how TV worked as a kid. So I thought that what I'm seeing is happening live. And there's just a guy with a camera walking around filming all these conversations and things as they're happening. Um, and, and it just, it, as I started to kind of tell my own stories and create my own stuff that just didn't appeal to me because I was like, well, where am I going to find people? I can't do that. What I can do is draw. I can make a comic book. I can't make a TV show. Um, so from there, that branched into, um, you know, again, flipping through Archie comics, waiting for um, my mom to check out with the groceries every Saturday. And um, I, I think the big story the one, the one that I tend to tell the most because it relates directly to my uh, superhero background was my when I was in, oh gosh, I can't remember the grade anymore, but still relatively young. My brother got a Teen Titans comic book and I can't remember which run it was. If I saw it again, I, I would know it. Um, but it, it wasn't like the show. The show was on TV at the time, the, the original Teen Titans cartoon, or I guess it's not the original, but the, the one that was very popular in the early 2000s was on TV. So we picked up this book thinking, um, well, you know, thinking it was going to be the Teen Titans. And it was, Starfire was wearing a lot less clothing, which I, I kind of picked up on. I didn't mind, but my mom minded. She, she didn't, wasn't a fan of... Um, you know, I, I, guess I must have been about nine. So she wasn't really a fan of me getting, you know, the full glimpse of that at that age. And I, I for whatever reason, she was never on my brother's case about reading the book, but mine. I, he was allowed to see it. Very odd. Um, and at one point, she actually picked up the book because, again, she used to read to us at night. So she, she picked it up and was flipping through it. And there was uh, a joke that Beast Boy made about Wonder Girl's panties. And my mom threw the book away. And that was, it was devastating to me. And, and my brother was mad at me for some reason. I think I must have asked her to read the book to me or something. But um, so our, our first comic ever, our first, you know, real trade paperback superhero comic was thrown away. Um, but it, it, if anything, only made me more interested in, well, now I need to find more comics now. And now I need to, you know, make sure I'm finding comics that maybe my mom won't you know, pick up the cover and go, oh, no, and, and you know, put it back down. Um, but yeah, so that, that's one of my, my kind of earliest superhero comic memories. Although uh, growing up, I was, I, I can't remember when I started being interested in superheroes. Um, 
I can remember being very little and seeing reruns of the Superman movies on TV. Um, I can remember watching Smallville. I can remember, I, I don't know if it was, I think it was a Supergirl movie that was out and they used to play it on the WB at like eight o'clock at night on some Sundays. And I loved that movie and I haven't, I, I haven't found it since and I haven't watched it since, but, uh, that I remember that being a very just huge, I, I just loved the look and the colors. And I always, I, I liked the idea of flying. That just seemed like the most appealing thing in the world to me. Um, and then the, I guess the biggest um, early influence was the animated shows. So uh, Batman, the animated series was huge when I was a kid. Um, and so was uh, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited uh Batman Beyond Teen Titans so all of those were you know I, I would say some of my earliest binge watching TV experiences because we would go to Blockbuster and I would make my parents rent the D or the I might have been we no, were probably DVDs by then but um I would make them rent the DVD version of the show that I also made them watch every single Saturday morning on TV <laughs> and I I mean God bless them for for not just absolutely saying no to it. Although I, to be fair, I rented Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island at least 30 times as a kid. I loved that movie so, so much. I still do. But um, yeah, again, my parents were always just troopers, but I, I just loved those shows. And it, it was such a, an easy introduction into what really is kind of a daunting world of comics. Because when you think about comics, and even so I'm just focusing on, on DC for the moment. Um, which it, it isn't, you know, the extent of my comic interest, but just to my, my starting point, let's say was DC. Um, and it, it was just such an easy way to get to know those characters because it's short kind of quick episodes, um, with an easy to understand plot for a kid, but it, it just, you know, I, I know who Zatanna is because she's in that episode where Wonder Woman gets turned into a pig by the witch Cersei. And, and Batman sings a, a very lovely, lovely song up on stage to get Cersei to turn Wonder Woman back into a person. So, but, but then now I know who Zatanna is. So that eventually spiraled into me, you know, learning about Justice League Dark and then, uh, you know, branching that into, okay, so John Constantine and Swamp Thing. And so it, it really, and, and even I, I think when I was maybe halfway through college, I, I binge watched the Justice League show again and it just opened so many doors because there were so many characters that I'd forgotten about and so many little storylines that I, I, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that as a kid. And then, you know, you Google the character and then that leads you to, you know, give or take a hundred books that you're like, OK, well, now I want to read that. And, and then that turns into a room full of comics and no space for your actual work stuff. <laughs> First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I Am The Night. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones, I am the night.
Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Mad Pup, a Harley Quinn cast. Harley Quinn? Harley fucking Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making bat shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Ogre. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up and battle me, nuts. I definitely do not fuck bats. In need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't fuck with Lois Lane. For fuck's sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. <laughs> Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. Fuckers. Picture this. Someone who knows nothing about comics. Someone who knows comics from movies, TV, and video games. A complete ultra comics nerd. You pick the character you want us to talk about. You send us the questions you want answered. You make the show. A podcast by fans. For fans. Making new fans. Superheroes. Or dummies. Part of the Comics in Motion Podcast Network. All work and no play makes for a dull way to live, don't you agree? Join me, Adam Ray, and a very special guest each week on the Hostile Takeover, where they and I discuss their favourite game, PC, console, board game or tabletop, whatever they decide, what we will talk about. Let gaming be the way forward. Working's too much. It's time for a Hostile Takeover, coming soon to a podcast feed near you. Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. <laughs> Hello, listeners. This is Tony Farina from DC Comics News and an occasional guest on Comics in Motion. I'm pleased to announce a new show called Indie Comics Spotlight. Each week, my guests and I will be taking a deep dive into a current title or a classic graphic novel from a publisher other than the big two. Consider this show the best of the rest. My hope is that we'll bring new readers to independent comics and give old readers a chance to share their thoughts. Join me each week in the Comics in Motion feed in your favorite podcast catcher. I mean, obviously, after college is when I started, you know, pursuing writing about comics professionally. And uh, 
uh, editing comics freelance. Um, yeah, I, I never really took a break. I would maybe for like a month or so at a time, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, and it's and that was one of the interesting things because when I was in high school, uh, again, I kind of kept it to myself. I didn't really, I didn't go out of my way to tell people that I was into comics. Um, and at some point between, you know, the end of my senior year of high school and the beginning of my freshman year of college, I decided screw that because I moved into college with a stack of comic books and just, they were out on my shelf. They were, you know, and, and I, I kept that, not that same stack, but every year I would move into college with, uh, you know, I have these big volumes of, of leather bound fairy tale books and I would bring about as many, um, as many trades as I could possibly get into a, you know, relatively small dorm room. And it, it was just, it was interesting because I, well, as a, as a kid, um, you know, in grade school and whatnot, I was pretty open about liking comics. I, I would draw them during class. Um, I was always talking about, you know, superheroes and Wonder Woman and, and, it, it, there, there was a reason the, the other girls didn't like to play with me as much sometimes. Um, and I, I just, I kind of internalized, okay, so we're, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that out loud. I, I was, you know, still the loner. Um, and I, I hit, I'm, I'm a relatively tall woman, but I hit five foot nine when I was around 12. So just, oh, taller than both the boys and the girls in my class, big, poofy hair, always drawing, always by myself. Um, and I, we, we, so it, it just, I don't know. I, I, I was open about it and I realized that people didn't seem to like that I was open about it. So in high school, I decided, okay, I'm not going to be open about it. Um, and that was, that was really my metal nerd phase. That was a whole other phase. I went through a, an extreme heavy metal and, and classic rock phase in high school. Um, but then, yeah, when I got to college, I just decided screw it. And weirdly enough, people seemed to like me more because of it, which was some some good positive reinforcement. But um, I, I mean, I can remember some of the roommates I moved in with being like, oh, what's this? Uh, or, you know, just kind of giving me the weird side eye look. But um, and, and actually, specifically, the girl I lived with the last two years of college, um, I, I can just remember her being like, oh, comics, that is so fun. Oh, you're like a nerd, I love it. But she was not into it at all, but she was so supportive of the fact that I was into it. She thought it was so cool. Um, yeah, I, and I'm, I'm still very good friends with her. She was a, a solid example of being polar opposites as, as human beings, but just, she just respected that I, I did my own thing. And it, it was funny kind of, in, in those later years of college, um, you know, if if I would hang out with a guy or you know have have people back over for for a group project or something, typically, the first question guys would ask is, "Oh, are those your comics?" And I would be like, "Who who else who's who's keeping their comics in my apartment?" Like, yeah, yes, they are my comics. <laughs> and it, it was it was just interesting to see either it, I could tell the guys who were really into comic books would immediately kind of go on to the um into like quiz mode and it, it's the same thing whenever um when i was in high school and guys would see or not even just guys i would say like older people out and about 
um, would see me wearing like a Metallica shirt or an ACDC shirt, they immediately need to ask you, oh yeah, what song do you like? And you know, if you stammer and have nothing to say, then they're, you know, oh, so you just got that shirt at Forever 21. But when I, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I like most of the Black album, but I really like Unforgiven 3 off of Death Magnetic, then everyone's like, oh, oh okay. So she she actually knows what this is, never mind. And that that tended to be, I would say from from anyone who was a real, real comic book fan, I would get the 20 questions first and then very quickly it would turn into just, you know, gushing about all the stuff that we had in common and all the books that we've both read. Um, and on the flip side, I would, I would occasionally meet people who I guess had or considered themselves comic book fans, but didn't read any comics. So, it, you know, they would come in, see the books, and I would kind of try to hold a conversation. It would just very much turn into like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, I, I'm not. So it's, I, I kind of learned to gauge people by how they reacted to, to my book collection, essentially. It's, are they, are they cool about it? Do they show interest? Or, uh, you know, do they feel the need to quiz me? Or are they just totally like, I don't know what this is and I hate it. <laughs> and, and that's, it's actually, and it wasn't on purpose, but that is kind of how I maintained friendships in college. Because everyone who was cool with it or, you know, had... Uh, had some comic book backstory of their own I'm still friends with. And everyone who thought it was weird, I can't, I can't say that I've talked to in the past five years. So yeah, it just, uh, it just never really, never went away. No. Yeah. It seems like along the way you've, you've managed to find sort of, even now with, um, with the website, you've managed to find yourself the little community that you can, you can just continue with and not feel like, um, I have to sort of hide myself from the world. Yes, exactly. And that's, I, I think honestly, I'm even more of a comic book nerd as an adult because I keep finding these communities, you know, whether it's going to a convention and seeing the hundreds of thousands of people who are clearly, you know, on the same level as you, <laughs> or, um, you know, again, working for, for DC Comics News, it's so, so fun to, I can go off on any kind of nerdy tangent or, um, or really, I mean, especially my co-hosts on the podcast, I can message probably any of them and say, Hey, I've, I've been thinking about, um, you know, Cersei's role in Wonder Woman and how it relates to, uh, you know, her kind of unofficial goddess of transformation and how transformation has something to do with it. And, and like, I can go off on a, a 15 minute spiel and nobody minds. And half the time, like, especially if it's Steve, Steve will send me, oh yeah, here's a bunch of comic books that relate to that thing that you're talking about. And I, it's so, so valuable and genuinely heartwarming to have people in my life like that. Um, because normally it would just, I, I used to follow my parents around the house with these, these ideas when I was a kid. I would, you know, from either a comic or another book, I would come up with some kind of an idea or a theory or, or just, see something that I thought was cool and I would follow my parents around the house saying like mom did you know that in in 1945 the reason that C.S. Lewis started writing Chronicles of Narnia and like I and just go on and on and on and on and you know I can remember my parents doing the laundry I, at one point I remember actually following my dad while he was mowing the lawn which means there was no way he was hearing a word I was saying <laughs> and I was going on and on about Edgar Allan Poe and I like I, I just wanted 
to just, I don't know that I wanted to have a conversation so much as just talk about the thing that is exciting me in the presence of another human being. But I, I can say now as an adult that having someone actually talk back who knows what you're talking about is an incredible experience, very validating. It's interesting that you've, the storytelling has been a big part of your life throughout, but it's this sort of particular niche of it that has kind of become the biggest thing in a way like you could have you know mythology very much could have overtaken your life as it does with some people well actually i wouldn't say that it hasn't because that that is um that is definitely my my secondary obsession um i and mythology kind of came into the picture a little bit later than fairy tales i would say my my um, storytelling journey started with the stories I heard in church and, and my the only books I really had as a little kid. Well, not the only ones, but the ones I remember. My parents would buy us uh, saint books that would just have picture of the saint, what they're the patron saint of, and like a little story. Um, and it's, and again, my, my parents would probably not like that, that this was the connection I made, but as a kid, you know, I'm flipping through this book and it's okay. So St. Anthony is the patron saint of lost things. So if, if you lose something, then he's the person that you, you pray for the intercession of, I think is the, the phrasing. Um, and so then when I started picking up mythology books, it's okay. So uh, Demeter is the goddess of the harvest. So if you want a good harvest, you talk to Demeter. And so it just very easily transitioned from the type of books that my parents were giving me into, you know, as I'm starting to go to the library, um, you know, or, or borrow books from school or, or you know, a, a nice family trip to Barnes and Noble, the books that I was seeking out myself mirrored those same, the kind of the, the same substance of it, but now it's a Greek mythology book. Um, you know, and that's that's a whole other line of you know looking at belief systems and how mythology is old religions and religions kind of have some signifiers that transfer from uh you know just across literally all religions there are just certain signifiers that you know there is the deity of blank or the thing of blank and they do this specific function um and that too was really i think kind of cathartic or calming for me as a kid um, just to know that there, there's an order to these things, that if you want a happy marriage, then, you know, in Greek mythology, it's, it's Hera that you go to. If you want a happy marriage as, uh, you know, a Christian, you actually, who is, I guess, Mary and Joseph would be. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, it, it's sort of, I, I learned to appreciate having I guess order is the, is the best word for it or having, um, you know, a, a kind of blueprint for how to understand people or how to understand situations. Um, you know, and it just develops, I, I, I guess I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Um, yeah, I don't, I, it's, it's bizarre, but I think also just my parents raising me, and surrounding me with so, so many, you know, old Bible stories 
it just made me want to seek out similar old stories. But I, I went, you know, a couple thousand years further back than they would have liked, basically. <laughs> um, and, and not just Greek mythology, of course. Um, I, in the past couple years, especially, but um, even as a kid, I, I've tried to look into Native American mythology. Um, I like I like Japanese mythology is always very fascinating. Um, and Celtic mythology is very interesting to me, but I'm always frustrated by the kind of the difficulty in finding sources. And that, of course, is, uh, there I, I had kind of a crisis moment at a point in college because I realized that all of these things that I really like were missing a lot of information because, uh, you know, the old old Celtic mythology comes from old Celtic religions and pagan religions, which were wiped out by the Christians. And it was like, oh, crap, that that was us. We did that. So I'm the reason why I can't finish this book. Um, and so, you know, that, that was a whole moment of crisis in college where I was like, why did we ruin everything? But, um, but uh, and it, it's it's just really fun and interesting, I think, to kind of study the way stories echo each other from, you know, ancient Greece to ancient uh, ancient South America, the the Mayan and Incan cultures, even, um, you know, over and then over into Asia and just all over the world, these same kind of tropes and these same kind of stories. I mean, there is, um, oh gosh, I should have written it down. I'm never going to remember the name now, but there's a Russian fairy tale that perfectly, perfectly mirrors, um, what is it? Not not Cinderella, but one eye, two eyes, one eyes, two eyes, three eyes, which is kind of a another German version of Cinderella. Um, and then that perfectly mirrors a, a Native American story that I read. And it's it's just it's so fascinating to think, okay, so all of these stories existed at totally different moments in history on totally different continents and with peoples who had no idea that the others existed, and yet they're exactly the same. And it it just, it, to me, kind of opens up that internal, I don't know, that, that internal door to thinking that human beings are extremely, extremely similar, maybe more so than we're willing to admit, because how is it that, uh, you know, a 14th century person in Japan is telling the same story that's a, you know, 17th century Native American person is telling their kid with different names and different nuances, but still it's that same story of, oh, so there is the stepmother and the stepsister and the, you know, it's, it's just has that kind of exact blueprint. Um, and I, I think one of the, the fun things that I learned um, just through studying this are kind of the ideas that, um, especially like scholars like Joseph Campbell, uh, put out just to say that um, I'm trying to think of the right way to word this because it's it can be worded really really nicely or I can sound like I'm all over the place here. <laughs> but, um, um, but but the the idea that humans tell stories to make sense of the world around them, to make sense of ourselves, to make sense of other people, um, and that the stories we tell draw on our own emotions. So it's not magic necessarily. I mean, it could be fun to imagine that it is magic and that there's some kind of storytelling God that goes all over the world throughout history and gives people stories. But more than likely, it's that, you know, the 
the the person in Japan in the 14th century and the the Native American person in the 17th century are experiencing similar emotions or experiencing some kind of, you know, it, it's not it's not foreign to any of us to feel isolated or to feel unappreciated or to feel like we're not where we want to be in life. And um, I, I guess when these kinds of emotions come out, we can tell the same stories sometimes. So it, it's just interesting. And I, I think it speaks to the fact that as different as we all are, there is still just that internal human piece that is, is the same. Well, there's a message I can't top. <laughs> I, to be fair, though, that I, I have to give that to Joseph Campbell. That was that's that's not a not a Kelly original, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I I and my my interest in mythology now kind of spreads out too. So once you know, I spent my whole life learning these patterns and these uh, connections. So then the fun part is, you know, moving into college and as uh, I started studying writing, how do we subvert these things and use them to tell an even better story? So, you know, take the idea that you think you know and you think you understand and change it just a little bit so that, uh, you know, so that it's fun, so that it's new. I think one of my favorite examples, uh, it's, it's something I heard Neil Gaiman say. And, you know, he said, all right, so you're, you're thinking about werewolves. You want to write about werewolves. Well, what if a werewolf fights an armchair, and now you have a werechair, and I, I and, like, and kind of building a story out from there. But I love that that you know, just the whole concept of of subversion, the whole concept of taking something that we know and flipping it a little bit. Like he he has this one story um, where it's a uh, a girl rubs the lamp and a genie comes out, and he says, "All right, what are your wishes?" And she's like, "No, I'm good. I don't want anything." And so the genie just has a nice nice little life with this this woman who doesn't want anything <laughs> and i it's it's fun because it, we're taking ideas and concepts from you know our our ancestors going back thousands of years and recycling them in a way that we're still kind of learning the same lessons but we're doing it with our own style and on our own terms and it gets to be fresh again and it happens in every single generation. I mean, even the, um, I'm try trying to think of the best example of it. Um, oh, well, actually the uh, Lord of the Rings is, is a good example because Lord of the Rings is, you know, it comes out of both um, Tolkien's kind of, you know, internal moral values, but also World War II and, or one or two, my gosh, World War I. World War I? Hmm. My brother would hate me for forgetting this, but, but basically fighting in a massive global conflict and then trying to make sense of where is the good in the world after seeing the things that he's seen, after you know experiencing the entire world shifted on its head and living through a horrific, terrible events. Um, but then how do we find the good in it again? And how do we create heroes when we've seen such evil? And his response to that from taking something from the 1900s was to then pull in mythology from older, older um, uh, European tradition and build that into a morality tale that helps us make sense of the end of a great war. Um, and, and it just, it's 
fascinating to see it happen because now we have uh, fiction that branches off of Lord of the Rings. So we have things that pulled their inspiration from that, which pulled this inspiration from that, which when so it, it's just a strange and yeah, strange and very accessible way to see what's similar between yourself and people from thousands of years ago. Because there, I, I don't think, I mean, it's that's the blessing and the curse is I don't think we could find a story now that doesn't have some roots somewhere further back. Um, but then that it's it's great because it tells us that we're still human, I guess. <laughs> I'd probably have to go to some kind of a therapist and get psychoanalyzed to figure out if this is the real reason. But I, I think that is why I've clung so hard to storytelling. Because um, I, I just, you know, I, I was raised to believe in heroes and to believe in the good in everybody. And I, I mean, obviously throughout life, we very, very often don't see the best in everybody. We see the side of them who is flipping you off in traffic and coughing on you in line at the grocery store and, uh, you know, putting their trash in your bins for like the fifth time, even though you've asked them not to. And it's, I, I think even as a kid, just the bad, the, the darkness in people was weird and overwhelming and just not what I wanted to believe in. So storytelling and, and reading stories became my way of sorting things out and became my way of kind of putting order and sense to other people. Um, so yeah, to me, it is absolutely the way to understand not only the people that I interact with every day, but uh, you know, the people that existed a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand years ago, there's this, um, there's just this common thread. And I, and I can't even say for sure, because I, you know, I've, I've said that it's these emotions that we feel that are the same or these experiences, but it, I, it almost feels like it's more, um, I, it, like it's bigger than that, that it's maybe just that the human soul is the same, that it, it hasn't changed in all of these years. We are still at our core confused, usually uh, usually somewhat foolish creatures who have a, a massive capacity for good and who have the choice to be good, but it, it, it is a choice that you make every day. Um, and and that is, I think, one of my favorite things about stories is that you see characters make choices. And even if you know this character is going to do this stupid thing over and over and over again, you still just understand the value of the choice. Because if you watch the, what is it, the, the little boy who cried wolf, you you watch him cry wolf for the third time and you're, you know... I'm not going to do that in my life. I when when a wolf comes to eat my sheep, I'm going to make sure the neighbors come running. <laughs> it's we we even learn from their inability to make the right choice because the message that you get from that is, well, don't do the stupid thing. And I mean that's that's kind of a, I, you know, I don't know, dumbed down way of saying it, but it. There, there's just this truth and this honesty to stories that we've seen echoed and reflected and retold and reworked um and it's it's comforting to me and especially coming out of you know 2019 and 2020 was kind of a um I'm going to say this without profanity 
mess. Um, and you know, from, from the, the safety of my couch where I was for a very long time, watching the news going through the, uh, well, we had, we had a, a fun election here in the States and, uh, people were, you know, not their friendliest selves. And it just is, sometimes it's hard to remember that we are all still so connected and so similar and that even the most annoying self-righteous person on the internet has good in them um and i, I think it's why it's, i always go back to it because it's it's just helps me remember that there is order and there are choices and there is good and evil and nobody is exclusively one or the other they may be more one than the other but there's there's always something and maybe i, I other people even if the lesson that you get from them is don't do that Hear more from Kelly on the DC Comics News podcast and DC Comics News After Dark, available on YouTube. Kelly contributes to the DC Comics News website and you can follow them on Twitter at KelGainsWrite. All links available in the show notes. is a super dummy production for fantastic universes find out more at fantasticuniverses.com and superdummy.co.uk slash geek you can contact the show on twitter at era of geek or by email geek at superdummy.co.uk you can support the show and fantastic universes by joining our patreon patreon.com slash fantastic universes Although I do think confused and mostly foolish will probably be on my gravestone. <laughs> oh, I love that. I always come up with things I want on my headstone. I would love to write someone's headstone. <laughs> well, <laughs> you want to know what mine is? It's, it's, pr- it's pretty great. It's from Bojack Horseman. Uh, and it is a line that says, oh, God, now I'm going to forget it because I'm on the spot. Oh, crap. <laughs> Oh, that was it. It was. She drinks like a Kennedy at a wake for another Kennedy, but damn if she doesn't get shit done. That's what I want on my headstone. <laughs> I like that. <laughs>